welcome to the For the Reef podcast. My name is Mitch Dender, fisheries biologist with co-host Ian Bell, LFS owner and first responder. Our goal is to take our fish uh, nerd conversations from the fish room floor to your living room while bridging the gap between the hobbyists and coral reef conservation. So we're back at it. We're back. Uh, we are back. And uh, it's been a bit of a delay, uh, but you know how, how things go. We, uh, we got a lot busy. going on. And, you got a new job. It yeah, happens. It's been, uh, it's been busy. So need to say we're trying to get back on the, on the wagon here. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys remember last uh, episode, we were talking about moving a fish tank and all of the logistics that go along with that. Today, we're going to try and dive into what you need to do to keep uh, your livestock and you know your so so-called tank alive when you're moving it. Right. So, so uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of what we're going to be getting into. Ian, you got anything you want to? I think we were going to sort of start off things like we we talked a lot about last time about logistics and things you think about. We're starting off this one like, okay, moving day is here. Yeah. Now what do we do? Yeah, exactly. And so we're kind of following this assumption that uh, we're moving the tank all in one day. Um, yeah, because there's a, there's a bunch of different moves we talked about last time, but to try and get into all of them would be difficult. So we're going to just, we're going to use Mitch as an example since he's going to move. So we're moving, you know, within a couple of hours. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, as we said in the last episode, it's not the ideal way to move. Um, when you're moving a tank, your, your best time to do upgrades or make big changes to the system is on, uh, during the move. Um, but, uh, under this situation, we're kind of, you know, taking the hardest way and we're going to move the tank on the same day as the livestock. Um, so I guess the first thing is the consideration of, can you, um, keep the livestock uh, separate from the tank, and I guess that would probably be the ideal way, right? Uh, you know, we would we would want to move the system, give it a couple days to kind of settle, and then move all the livestock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like there's a number of different ways that I've been thinking we can do that. I mean, I can um, I can get Rubbermaid uh, like tubber tubberware. What are they called? Those those giant black rubber vats that you can get they're like 50 to 100 gallons or something like that and uh, I could temporarily keep the fish in there really all that they're going to need is heater uh, that sort of thing yeah I would think of it the same way we're thinking about uh, is if you were going to run a quarantine tank right so just they just need the basics somewhere to hide some like maybe some pvc stuff some heat some flow in there and uh, you know if you if you had thought about it ahead of time maybe some uh sponge filters or something that have been seeded with bacteria just to help with any ammonia that might build up while they're in there. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to be a day or two, maybe just water, change out some water every day. Just keep an eye on, on the levels. Yeah. And that's kind of like the, uh, so I think going from easy to hard out of our kind of three criteria that we have to consider when moving livestock is we have our fish, we have our coral, and then we have our kind of uh, microbes and our, you know, our bacteria and that kind of uh, a foundational bacteria that's developed in your tank and is keeping everything alive. Um, yeah, I think the fish and the coral are, are almost the easier parts. The fish, we sort of all know what to do. You got to keep them warm, you got to keep them moving, you got to keep the ammonia down, you got to keep them fed. That's, that's what you got to do. Corals, similar, right? Keep them warm, keep some flow, probably some light on them would be a great idea if you can. But if the question I always get asked in the store, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let Mitch answer some of these since he's the the professional uh, biologist, is people always ask me, well, what about my live rock? Do I have to keep it wet? How long can it be out of water? What can it, what, what do I do there? Uh, do I have to add if I want to add more? Is that okay? And the big one that everybody always asks about is the sand. Mm-hmm. I know what I would say, but I'm gonna let the professional answer. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that, and if you think about just surface area. Right. If you're taking the surface area where bacterias can live, and I think it's pretty safe to say that the majority of the bacteria is living on surfaces. Uh, I don't think that's as cut and clear as, as um, you know, we're all led to believe. I think that there's a lot more uh, floating in the water column um, that is, you know, different families of bacteria or different families of microbes that are, that are living in the water column. Um, but for, for all intents and purposes, 
your bacterial, your, your microbe foundation is on the surfaces of things inside of your tank. Right. So, the glass, the sand, the rock. Yep, exactly. And then surface area wise, the more surface area, the more opportunity for these microbes to thrive. Um, so I've always, I've always thought, okay, if you have sand, you have aragonite or something like that, or some type of crushed coral, whatever it may be as your sand, that sand is probably for most people is the filtration system on your tank. I mean, that sand is surface, uh, surface area wise. I'm sure you could figure it out if you could figure out the, the math on how much surface area is actually inside that sand. It's massive. Mm -hmm. And not only that, you have layers of micro family that are living in there, but, you know, based on what they need. So you have on the surface level, um, on the surface of the, of the sand, you know, you're getting a lot of your oxidizers and things like that, that are on the surface. And, uh, you know, they have those, those aerobic conditions, a, they get lots of oxygen, um, really efficient at breaking down things like, like converting, um, converting ammonia and, and dealing with those, those types of really toxic, um, things that can develop in your tank. That's where they're kind of being dealt with. But as you go deeper through that sand bed later, especially if it's a developed sand bed or crushed coral bed, you may be getting into kind of an anaerobic section um, where there's bacteria that are in there that are, you know, nitrifiers and that are anaerobic and they don't need oxygen um, or they can live in low amounts of oxygen. So it's a really, I don't think it's been, I don't think it's so easy to say either you take the sand or you don't, because I know for me, just replacing that sand uh, is going to be the best option uh, because it's easiest and because yeah. I siphon my sand. And that's what I was, I was gonna suggest, but I wanted to see what you would say. I, um, everybody's always concerned because there's so much nasty held in that sand there. And when you start mixing up and release it, what's going to happen to the water that you're putting it in. And that's always my concern. Yeah. And, and on, on top of that, um, no matter what we do, this is a destabilizing event for the tank. So I figure if we're going to destabilize anyways, are we better off um, to put a new stand in there, fresh water and sort of know that, or is it worse to put the old sand in there and still be destabilizing it? What, mm -hmm. what do you think? I think probably if the tank is young, um, you should be doing everything possible to maintain the diversity and the number of microbes, you know, when we're talking about hundreds of millions, let's just say, and in a young tank, you know, those, that's, that sand may be, you know, the foundation of your whole system. And if the tank is really young and you pull it out and you replace it, you may not recover from that. Or when you do, you might have bacterial issues. You might start to deal with dinoflagellants. You might deal with algae. You might deal with green water. There's all these things that could show up with the lack of a diverse microbe population inside your, your tank. So I would say if your tank's young, and let's say young is, I don't know, less than a year old, um, maybe it is best to try to move your sand. Um, because yes, you're going to create, well, I think one way or another, when you move that rock, you move those fish and, you know, even pulling your rocks out and, and having them dry for a few seconds, the amount of, you know, death <laughs> that's going to happen, the amount of ugly stuff that's going to come out of that rock, is going to come out of the fish during stressful situations during, you know, all of these different things is pretty immense. So you want to have the sand, which is your foundation of, of filtration. With that said, tanks that are a year older or more, and I'm just pulling numbers you know, out of my ass here, but let's just say tanks that are a year or older, you've really started to develop um, a bacterial um, foundation in the tank and other aspects. So say you put uh, filter media into your sump, like what's out there right now, like a microbacter or, you know, any of those bricks um, that those represent a massive amount of surface area. So you may be able to just 
have those, those have been established well enough that those will can kind of carry the, uh, the change. Uh, another consideration is if you have, uh, I mean, the live rock, those bacteria in that, and the depth that those bacteria can get into, it takes a lot of time. So in the center of your rock, you, you may, and this is debatable, and there's, you know, who really, no one I don't think has really started to dive into this, and somebody should, but, you know, how much nitrifying do you get in the center of your rock? How much you know, and sorry, I'm rambling here, but we, there's a lot of, there's so much more um, going on on a bacterial level, more than you have your, your nitrifiers and your, you know, your, your, uh, your, your ammonia, uh, I'm probably saying it's wrong, but like your oxidizers. We don't just have these fine little groups. There's millions of different species, millions of different families even of microbes in your tank. So they may be contributing to this perfect balance of, you know, competition that's going on in the tank that's keeping your, your nutrients low, that's keeping competition away. And who really knows when you start pulling things apart and replacing things? I don't think there's an easy answer, but short and sweet. <laughs> I think if your tank's a year old, I would try to save everything, move the sand, move the, move the, a, the uh, substrate and just try to maintain as much of that bacteria as you can because that's the foundation of your entire tank. Your tank's a little bit older, you don't have a heavy fish load, you don't expect a lot of light loss in your livestock, then you're probably okay to just pull that sand away, save yourself the headache, put new sand in, avoid the uglies that might be hiding in your sand and, uh, and, and just start fresh with some new sand. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm wondering, do you think a date range might be too black and white? I think it might depend too on how do you take care of your tank? Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Right, because I've seen some tanks, I'm like, yep, no problem with that one. I would, mm -hmm. I would probably do that. And I've seen some tanks like, ah, yeah, not so sure. Yeah, I mean, the sand totally. bed's a little nasty, you know, maybe the maintenance wasn't kept up, things have been busy, whatever the reason is. So yeah. I would caution, don't, don't, don't use our, our, timeline as a, as a gospel here. We're just sort of giving you a, a thought process to go by. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, let's, uh, it's a, it is a case by case situation. And if the tank, you know, needs to hit the restart button, then maybe this is the best opportunity you have to, you know, site, you know, reset the tank and start, you know, a, a new, um, bacterial load, so to speak, in your tank, um, and try to get a rebalance in there if your tank's kind of out of whack. And I mean, there's no timeline you could put on. You can have a ten, a ten year old tank that, if you try to save that sand, you really might be in some trouble. So, it's a it's a tough one. Um, I mean the 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 microbe section obviously is is a big thing. But as far as corals, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. I've heard that it's really difficult to move some of your bigger colonies. What's your experience with, with moving some of the bigger colonies? I haven't had to move that many, but I, I'm just going to sort of go by what I see <clears throat> at wholesalers and stuff. And as soon as you move anything, you're destabilizing it. It doesn't like that. And there's usually some sort of adverse effect, whether it's you know, it doesn't want to open right away or it colors down or, or what. So I, I think you need to expect some sort of reaction from these creatures that don't like to be unstable. Mm -hmm. They don't like change. And I'm thinking decent size and probably a several water changes after a move in short order would be probably prudent just to keep the water quality up, anything they might be releasing, kind of stress, mm -hmm. you know, because we all know about coral warfare and things like that. I'm thinking anything you can do to keep that water quality up for the first little bit would be key. Yeah, I mean, even like from a nutrient perspective, right. um, like if you have an established tank with a couple of big colonies and you go to set things up, A, they're probably not going to do any growing for the first few months. 
So you need to watch how much your, your alkalinity is, you're going to be dosing in your alkalinity and all of your different things like that, because your tank's just probably not going to consume as much. And at the same, at the same point, big, big colonies of coral will, you know, really siphon up a lot of the nutrients that are free floating in the, in the available in the water. So your nutrients, you know, where you normally might not have had to do a lot of water changes because uh, your water is just always clean and clear and doesn't have any, uh, you know, issues. Maybe you, maybe you should be doing water changes a lot more frequently. Um, I think I probably would at the first little while. I'd be really testing a lot and paying attention because you've moved the sand and released goodness knows what. You've moved the rock and like you were just saying, there's so much stuff down deep in there. What's gotten released? What's out in the flow now mm -hmm. that they're not maybe used to or not going to react well to. Yeah in terms of the fish as well, like who knows what's in there. Mm -hmm. So I think paying real close attention to your water quality right after a move would be really important. Yeah. This got me kind of thinking too. I was thinking about something on the way home and I was uh, talking with one of my friends that's a genetics whiz. Um, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't, I don't call myself a genetics expert or anything like that, but I was talking to one of my, one of my friends who is, and she was, uh, and I was asking her about characterizing, um, the biodiversity of the microbes in your aquarium, if that's possible. Um, and this was really, really interesting because for me, we're, we're kind of getting a little off topic, but I think this is pretty cool anyway. Um, <laughs> like, so I've talked about this before. When you look at Sanjay's tank, Right. When you look at somebody's, and I'm just using Sanjay because his tank's awesome and it's been a step old. It's, it's been there for a really long time. And he always claims I can do anything to do this tank. It doesn't budge. The nutrients don't budge. Um, what did it take on a, on a, on a micro level? What did it take to get that system to that level? Yeah. I think it's diversity, like you said, mm -hmm. and I think it's age and stability. Yeah. And anytime you mess up any of those things, I think something bad happens or not, not as, as stable or and, and pleasant as you would like anyways. Yeah. And I don't know if this goes like, uh, I don't know if this is apples to apples, but have you heard of, uh, you know, your microbiome in your stomach? I have. I actually, I, I've been listening to Rich Ross on his podcast mentioned that a few times and he thinks that's the really next big area in the hobby is going to be these microbiomes. And that's not something that I know a whole lot about, but it sounds fascinating because the more you dig into things, it more, it seems like it's what's important is right down on a base base level. Yeah. That we haven't even yet touched on and we're yeah. just sort of maybe getting lucky. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been, uh, <clears throat> I, I, uh, I've been thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to know more about it. So like when you talk about microbiome in your gut, right? And now that there's this, it's this huge area of research that's kind of exploding right now. It's the microbiome in your gut. And that's the reason why I was talking to one of my genetics friends, because it, to, to characterize what bacterias and, you know, what the microbes are in your gut, you need to identi identify them from a genetic level. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. Basically, like what happens in the gut is when you have a really diverse, um, when you have a, a and, and the key here is it's not just diverse, it's also uh, what populations are kind of, or what families, and we always say family, and the reason why I'm saying families rather than species is because there's, you know, so many, it's so diverse on, on the microbe level. Like to try to characterize species isn't really a thing. When you do studies on what your microbiome is, um, or you know your micro microbes in general, usually it just gets down to a family level, and then they'll be like, okay, there's a million of this of these different families. Families being, uh, you know, one step up from species. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. So like, in your gut, you have this whole thing where if you're, they say, if you're eating good foods and the only real way that they've proven to improve your gut biome is to consume fiber. So eating veggies and fruits and things like that 
actually will improve your gut biome. And the bacteria that grow in your gut when you're eating good foods like vegetables, blah, 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 that are high in fiber, it increases the number of those, let's call them beneficial microbes. And those microbes can go all the way to controlling your personality. They also crave more of the good stuff. So when you start eating vegetables, all of a sudden you might start craving vegetables. Your body will respond better to vegetables. And then what happens is when you eat, say, a donut, <laughs> your stomach will really respond badly to that donut. It will cause insulin issues. It'll change your, you know, it'll, it'll cause personality issues. You know, you'll get, you have, you'll be in a bad mood, things like that. You'll get stomach acid issues. Um, all because of the bacteria in your stomach aren't prepared for the donut. Right. Vice versa, you can have a, a stomach that's super ready to eat donuts and isn't <laughs> so ready to eat uh, nutritious foods. So, and, and, it, and that's bad in its own realm, but at the same time, if you have a bacteria, if you have a microbiome that's really efficient at eating donuts and then you mm. eat a piece of broccoli, you might not actually even feel good. Right. So I think that whole thing also applies to the fish tank. And maybe that is what the key here is, is like, you know, if your tank has been eating donuts for 10 years and, uh, and you go to move it, you know, maybe the reset button is what you need. And what I mean is, is by that might show up as a tank that seems to be unstable, that seems to have dinoflagellin issues, that seems to always get algae that has nitrogen uh, or nitrates spiking, uh, ammonia spikes. That's mm -hmm. another thing, ammonia for sure. Um, your bacteria levels might be fluctuating all the time. All of those things might be a condition of not treating your tank with much respect. Yeah. <laughs> Where Sanjay's tank eats vegetables all day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it, it's, a, it's really an interesting thing. And, and the other point that I had was I was asking her about, you know, what, and I just want to, uh, I'll just go back. I just want to remember, cause I wanted to, to, to make sure I say exactly the way she said it. While you're looking it up, I was watching a, a magna talk from Dr. Tim the other day when everybody started to notice he's one of the authorities on bacteria and it kind of touches on all the things that you're saying. So if anyone looks it up, it's, I don't remember what year it was, but it was Dr. Tim at one of the MACTAs that the videos that BRS puts out. And he was talking about the differences in the nitrifying bacteria that we use for our tanks mm -hmm. and how one goes after a certain type of ammonia and another one goes after another and, and the importance of getting the right ones. And I think it, this conversation will become even more important now that live rock's not really a thing. It's not really readily available and imported as much as it was due to various restrictions and what's so most people now are these days are, are starting their tanks with um, dry rock yeah, yeah. and added bacterias and maybe just adding one company's bacteria is not enough maybe we need to add some from a some from b some from c to start you know diversifying the bacterias that are in our tanks yeah it's uh you know it we've we've gotten into this and i think it's for the best uh i don't think we should be taking live rock from the no. ocean but i think that the good intentions of starting with dry rock so that you don't get pests i think we have a bit of an oversight on what are we missing out on sure. by not using uh media or rock that's had a long time to uh be seated and that kind of thing yeah and i think that's where this this microbiome studying is is gonna tell us a lot yeah and so basically the way it works is um, you can take a water sample and then you have to extract the dna from that water sample so in the sample you would have to filter it capture it uh capture the dna on a filter and then extract and what it's called is 16 srna sequencing um and that that those that RNA is, is presumed, well, not even presumed, it is, it's known to be extremely variable. So basically, i.e. the way it's going to happen is, is the result that you'll get back is you'll be able to say there's a whole bunch of these families, a whole bunch of these, and when I'm saying a whole bunch, I mean there's millions of this kind of group of, of bacteria, there's this kind of group of bacteria, 
and maybe what we can get are ratios of, you know, we have, we have a lot of these good bacteria that do this type of stuff. And we have these type of bacteria that are more, you know, your, uh, you know, breaking down your ammonia. And then you have these type of bacteria that are more your, your heterotrophic and they're really aggressive and they consume, you know, full proteins and, and things like that, that help break down waste in the aquarium. Um, and, and then you have these, which aren't doing much. And these ones are just kind of covering up surface area, or you have these that just consume a lot of oxygen and die a lot. And then they, um, and then they are, are stripping oxygen out of the tank. So there might actually be a lot that can be told from this story of the bacterias in your tank where you have, maybe there's uh, maybe there's some, some, you know, we can, we can go and look at some really uh, established tanks that, you know, we can all agree are really successful and doing really well. We can take samples from those. We can take samples from the oceans. We can take samples from tanks that are doing really bad. And, you know, my tank right now, I have a, I have a lagoon tank. It's a, it's like a little, it's a side tank to my main system. I just can't figure out what's going on with that tank. Like I, I have high nitrates and I don't feed a lot. The fish community is pretty low, but the corals don't seem to do well. I don't get algae or anything, but and I wonder if it's if it comes down to to a micro le level, and uh, that's kind of you know there might be a lot to be told on yeah uh, that I, level. I think it could be my my wholesaler um, swears that his tanks that he had actual live rock from like back in the day when it was live rock was live rock do better mm -hmm. to the point where he seeds marine pure and various things into those tanks to start it into new systems. So when I started my coral system at the store. He seeded marine pure for me, and I put that into my tanks to get it started. And it came with, you know, and I have sponges and all sorts of things growing on in there. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the same thing. So that goes back to where people were always wanting to get live rock from each other and put in your tanks. And I think that's still a valuable thing. You've just got to trust where it's coming from. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I get the pest, uh, the, the pest issues. I understand. I, I don't want Aptasia. I don't want, uh, you know, Monty eating flatworms. I don't want any of the pests, but I feel pretty decent now that if, if a, if the tank's being established and you're putting in a live rock and there's no corals in the tank or anything like that, that whatever pest does show up, a, it's not going to have much of a food source. So say you have, you know, Monty eating flatworms or, uh, whatever, and you, you bring those into your tank via someone else's live rock. There's not gonna be any Montipora in the tank for it to eat anyway. So chances are you're gonna starve that pest out. Another example, you bring in some Aptasia. There's a million products uh, on the market right now that you can use to get rid of Aptasia. The, the, the level that the hobby has gotten to now that we have an answer for almost every pest, right? We don't have many answers for for crazy biodiverse live rock that you know is the is the foundation and backbone of your entire system. That's more difficult, I think, to get than it is to deal with the pests. So I'm kind of flipping my tune because I would tell most people that it's best to start with with live rock. But I've started. I mean, it's best to start with dry rock. But now that I've started tanks with dry rock, I mean, the first year is a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there's any debate that it's harder. Mm -hmm. But for most people, it's the most accessible way. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess. And I, I thought about what when you were saying that there, I'm like, what a great time to deal with some pests or some algae or anything like that, that you may have mm -hmm. when you're moving a tank, like you've already got the rock out, you've got to like get your toothbrushes out, get whatever you need to do and oh, yeah. take care of that stuff before you reassemble the tank. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally. Especially because, you know, when your tank's in flux, that's probably when those pests are really going to reveal their ugly heads. You know? Sure, yeah. So Something's died off and that battle for surface area kicks on. Mm -hmm. This is the time, which, you know, ties into the water changes, ties into all of it. Yeah. So you I know, think when you're moving a tank like this, the first little while afterwards, you need to be diligent. You need to be monitoring. You need to be in touch with it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or... You have to just be ready for, you know, a lot of patience and, and, uh, you know, whatever tank you're like with me, I need to get it right because there's a lot of, you know, corals that 
I've had a lot of time and money into, and um, I don't want them to, I don't want to lose them at all. Um, where if you're moving a tank that has a couple mushrooms and, uh, you know, some hardy fish, you know, maybe you don't care as much. Maybe you just want to flip it over, see what happens and uh, um, just, you know, be patient knowing that the tank's going to go through some stuff. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's, I guess then, so when we start the tank back up, um, are we going to kick on all the equipment? So do we, do we want the skimmer to turn on day one or do we want to keep the skimmer off or do you want I think we to... would want the skimmer to turn on day one because we've potentially released just talked about doing water changes so i think if it's helping to clear that water and and take things out before we get the chance to do that first water change i i think i would want that yeah oh yeah i think yeah i mean the only reason why i said uh the protein skimmer is because I'm thinking of bacteria and I know that protein skimmers really pull out a lot of bacteria from your tank. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you're depending on those microbes during the move, you might not want to strip them. But I, I agree with you that the, the risk of, I mean, your skimmer is pulling out a lot more than just, you know, the microbes It's pulling out mm -hmm. a lot of gunk and, uh, I think I'd be more concerned about the gunk than the amount of microbes in the water at that point. Yep. Me too. Me too. And, uh, and I think we said this in the last episode, but I think the big thing at this point is make sure you have enough time on that moving day. Like you're not, you know, like, Oh, I'll set up the lights tomorrow or I'm, you know, I don't have a heater. Like the less destable things are, and it's pretty hard to do in the move, but mm -hmm. you know, you want that water heated, you want the lights ready to go so that the corals are not having more trauma than needed. Now, that being said, there's probably a school of thought out there that might reduce the lighting for the first couple of days, just not to sort of shock the corals more. Yeah, I, I was thinking I would probably dial the lighting intensity back a little bit. Yeah. Um, just to, uh, just because, because, you know, the, the highlights great. It, it, it triggers growth. I don't care if my corals grow for another six months after the move, right? I just want them to live. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe that's what I'll do too is, uh, is I'll, I'll pull the light back a bit. But, um, the other thing I was just thinking is I don't think you really want to introduce anything new, um, you know, a, before or after. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, because, and the other reason why I'm thinking is because of things like ick, you know. Um, yeah, it's going to be stressful. Yeah, the the, the stress, and then also, uh, you know, if the, if you're bringing anything in, you might be you might be exposing fish and corals to uh, pests, where on any regular day they'd probably be fine and be able to defend it. But well, because... and, and like we were talking about, you're, you're trying to get the tank stable again. So we've destabilized it enough and we have what we have that needs to go back in it. Adding more to that is just going to make that more difficult. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, all the way to like, <laughs> there's so much to consider. I mean, at the, at the, at the simple level though, um, going down from fish, coral, microbes, right? Yep. The main ingredients to keeping everything alive is... Make sure that the temperature is staying consistent, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to do things like heaters, obviously, you know, back up if you need it. Make sure that you're considering the, the power supplies and everything like that for your heaters. We've covered all that. Yeah. Next thing we have to worry about is oxygen. I was um, just going to say that. Yeah. And, and that's a big one. I mean, for the corals and for the fish. Right. Because I mean, we don't know what we've released during the move. We don't know a lot of things. So I would even be concerned about ammonia possibly in the first oh, few days. Yep, for sure. And, and ammonia all the way to like, there might be ammonia spiking in the vats that you have to fish in. There might yeah. be different things that are, that are going on in those temporary holding tanks. Exactly. That's a good point. I was going to bring that up later because when you're acclimating your fish to go back into that tank, well, first of all, we touched on it before you want to be changing out. If you're holding fish for a couple of days, you want to be changing some of that water, even though you may have some, um, 
seeded sponge or whatever in there with it. You're going to watch the, the ammonia levels and be changing some of that water out. But even so, it's not going to be as ideal as having it in a full tank. So you want to be careful that, and check the pH and things like that. And a lot of times what I've been taught over the years is we've always been taught to check salinity in your tank. And when you're acclimating fish, you're, you're going to use a salinity to sort of uh, make sure that the water that they came from is, is, is the same as the water that's going into. That's the simple reason you get told. What I've learned is what is more important is the pH of the water that they're in. The longer they're in the bag and they've been shipped, the more stuff is building up, the lower the pH drops. And when you, you've seen maybe fish in the past and you put them in the tank and they're sort of panting, I'm told that it's more pH shock, but most people don't have a pH meter to test that. So what they get told is match the salinity and then it's probably pretty close because it's taken that much time to drip it and, and time. But you want to make sure that your, your fish pH is matched before you put them back into the tank to reduce that shock on their system. They can regulate their salinity. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't do so well with bad pH. Yeah. I mean, so then what's basically happening is with fish, um, you know, when fish are releasing CO2 and that CO2 is getting up into the bag, really what your battle is in when fish are in a bag is not a lack of oxygen. It's, um, it's when that bag is, is opened it back up. So when CO2 is released into the water, that's what's causing your pH to go down. So those mm -hmm. are, that causes, because uh, you, have, you have your bicarbonates and your carbonates and, right. and the CO2 comes in and it, and, it, and it pulls that pH down. As far as I understand this is when the oxygen levels go down and you get the, into the lower pH, um, ammonia is in a non-toxic form. I think it's called ammonium. Um, and when it's in that form, it's pretty much harmless to your fish. The problem is, is if the fish is in there for a long time, it's pooping, so it's creating a lot of ammonia, but then it's also breathing out a lot of CO2. So your pH is coming down and there's a lot of ammonium in the water that's non-toxic. When the bag opens back up and a, a whole bunch of oxygen comes flooding into the, into, the, into the bag and it pulls all that CO2 out of the tank, the, the levels, the water wants to get back to neutral. So it's right. going to spike up. Right. And it brings the pH with it. Mm -hmm. So then the pH goes flying up and now all of a sudden that harmless ammonium is now turning into ammonia. And excuse me if I'm saying ammonium wrong. It feels like that's the wrong name, something like that. But anyway, it's, it's either it's non-toxic or toxic. And then when the pH spikes back up, it goes back to this toxic level. And that's when, you're, when your fish are really at the most, they're at the most risk. Right. So if your fish are going to be in a bag for an hour, two hours, yeah. I think slow acclimation is the way to go. Mm -hmm. If your fish has been in a bag for eight hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. Honestly, I think you should try to float the bag, get the temperature right. And they need to go into quarantine, of course. But their biggest risk is when that bag opens. So if you're just opening the bag and you're leaving them in that water, you're actually putting them at more risk by leaving them in the bag and just dripping water into that, even though you're just trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But we, what, so that's, that's something to consider when you're talking about the vats that the fish go into, you have to make sure that there's a healthy microbe culture that's in that tank to keep them alive because there is no CO2 uh, increasing in a vat that's exposed to the air, right? So they're going to be producing ammonia and it's going to be toxic ammonia. Right. So there needs to be, um, microbes in the water that can convert that ammonia to nitrite and then eventually nitrate. So that's a, that's a big one. Uh, yeah. If, if you're putting fish and you're not going to, you're not going to keep them with filter media or you're not going to keep them with live rock, they're just going to go into kind of a, a, a glass empty tank and yeah. you got to consider the water changes. Yeah, for sure. And I've noticed uh, it's something that I do when we bring fish into the store, especially if they, I know they've come fairly quickly off the plane. You, I check the pH in the, in the water that they come in and it's usually low sevens and I, even down to sometimes verging on lower than that. 
Wow. So we take, we put them all in the pail and we take as much water out as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's enough for to swim. And then we start putting more water from our system in and bringing that pH up before mm-hmm. I just put them right into the system. And it seems to work quite well. Yeah. That, oh yeah. That's uh. so have you, did you before, were you doing it a different way or is that the way you've kind of, I used to it? do it the salinity way, like everybody else, right. Match the salinity and, and uh, you know, good to go and mm-hmm. you have mixed mixed results yeah. it wasn't until i was talking to my wholesaler uh, pat at reef wholesale the, the man is a, a wealth of knowledge and he says salinity is what they tell most people because it's something they have and it's it's something they can measure and, and understand but ph is what's more important mm-hmm. and and since we've done that i i find where the fish are a lot better they're a lot yeah. healthier they're a lot happier and they they come around a lot more quickly from mm-hmm. the stress and then uh really getting off topic here but this just triggered my mind did you do that water change on your freshwater tank tomorrow <laughs> i had uh it was gonna be done this afternoon but we had a house fire to go to today so that kind of messed up my whole afternoon oh uh, so yeah i wasn't available to do it so i have an excuse this time <laughs> damn damn house fires they're always yeah. getting in the way well fortunately nobody was hurt but that uh, kind of took precedence over my water change yeah. <laughs> yeah oh yeah for sure yeah so i guess um I guess then what we're doing here is, I mean, we've, we've circled around a lot of different things uh, around microbes, around keeping big coral colonies. What are you going to do with your fish? Um, acclimation briefly. Um, we've, this has been an episode where I think we've went off, went off on a few uh, different. Yeah. It, it's, it's maybe not clear cut, but yeah but that's that's what's that's what's so interesting right and that's why i think we all love keeping aquariums because it's not clear-cut it's a never-ending changing battleground that you're kind of playing puppet master on and this is sort of why our intro to the show is what it is these are the the conversations from our fish room Mm -hmm. that we're bringing to you because this is what happens it's not a, a an instructional uh, setting when we're just standing there chatting and like, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. That's, yeah. that's not what we are. This is, we're going to get to there, but what about this? And Oh, Hey, I heard about that. And and you're going to, you're going to find more here than just strict instruction. You oh, might yeah. have to dig through a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's crazy is what I've really gathered from this. And just by, if you were to take the, this podcast and look at how much time we talked about each subject, we spent a lot of time on microbes. Yeah. And I think that bodes to that is what you need to be worried about. You need to make sure that your live bacteria in your tank is staying alive during this move because there's there are what is going to keep everything stable when you move yep. everything and they're going to keep everything healthy during the move. It's like you the people always say, right? You keep the water right and everything else comes along with it. Yep. Yeah, we're not fish keepers, we're water keepers. Yeah, and you're you're seeing even industry wide I'm noticing I think it's really becoming apparent that this is the new direction. This is what's important. You're seeing a lot more bacteria, you're seeing a lot more talk about it, how to use them properly. And then with this microbiome study and what's not that's going on, I think you're going to see this very quickly rise to the top of, of things that are important in your tank and I think we'll see a lot of changes in this area and in, in the future. Yeah, and you know, I'll throw this out there. Uh, it's something that I'm personally looking into. I want to see um, if we can start to characterize uh, microbes in our in our tank. And uh, I'm not like you know, I'm not Dr. Tim. You know, I don't. Yeah. I don't have a PhD in bacteria, but yeah. um, I think we can pull together people, and we can have you know, we can have some really decent tests and and more than that in the way that it's always worked in the aquarium hobby is it's going to take some trial and error it's going to take some you know what i was thinking is if we can um you know first we need a a a genomics lab Uh, i think it'd be like an environmental genomics lab that's willing to do this for us and Mm -hmm. then we need probably um a student or um, we need a paid paid lab techs that could run the gen, the DNA and or the RNA sequencing for us. Uh, and then we would have to be able to describe what came out of that. 
So the way I think it would work is once we identify a lab or um, that's either willing to allow us to do it ourselves or have someone do it for us, um, they're going to give us back a play sheet of what they found in the water. And that list might be millions of different families of potential microbe families that were in your water. And that's where I think you really pull in some experts to look at those microbes, <clears throat> know what they do and start characterizing the role that they play. And if we get a whole bunch of different, you know, we start characterizing these families or this role, these families do this, these families do this, these families are doing bad stuff, these, you know, and, and then you look at it from a number of different ways. You look at it, okay, there's these types of things, these types of families of microbes that tend to be doing, doing good things. So we want those. And then we can start looking at the relationships. Maybe, you know, you don't want just a crazy number of the good family, you know, so, so, so to speak, family of microbes, because what you actually need is everything to be kind of in check. So there might be like ratios that of, of competition that we want. There might be specific family types that we want. We already know that there's specific family types that we want because you buy them. <laughs> like when you yeah. go and you buy uh, uh, Microbacter 7, that's Microbacter 7. If you go buy D Dr. Tim's, it's his bacterial blend that is, is perceived to be good in your tank, right? So I don't know if I told you this, Mitch, or not, but there's somebody that is doing this in the States. Hmm. And uh, I heard about it again through Rich Ross's uh, podcast. There's a lot of great information on there and they're busy guys, but every time they put one out, I really I get something from it. The website is called aquabiomics.com. Okay. And they're actually taking samples from people from Saltwater's Aquarium and you could register your sample. And there's a whole bunch of information in here and on how it works and what they're looking at. They have a bunch of stuff. Uh, different bacteria is listed and I think it'd be quite interesting thing we should maybe reach out to them and see if we could get them on a podcast sometime it's uh aquabiomics b-i-o-m-i-c-s dot com that is cool microbiome analysis for the aquarium yeah that's neat well look yeah. at that. somebody's already doing that it's even better yeah so we might be able to sort of reach out to them and and uh, learn more about this Oh, for sure, man. We should really try to get somebody on here. Yeah, um, I think it'd be interesting. Yeah, because uh, I would talk through your off and I know you would too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, all right. Well, you know, I guess we uh, we circled around a lot of things. Um, yeah, I think uh, the basics of what you need to do to reset up your tank are there. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the logistical stuff explained and explained that. I just, I think the, the what you were talking about, the, the microbes, Mm -hmm. That is the important part, I think, of the move. Yep. And uh, when we get close to my actual move day, we'll do other podcasts surrounding that day of, you know, what things worked, what yeah. things did we do, what things didn't work. And yeah. maybe, maybe we'll take some be... video and, you know, talk about things as they happen too. Maybe I'll do a Facebook Live or something. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even if this, uh, aquabiomics if if they're willing to get involved maybe we can send them a culture or a sample before and after and see yeah. how why don't those... we reach out to them and uh, maybe when you post this mitch maybe put the the link in the notes there so people can yep i will check sure. it out for themselves all right all right well uh i think that's probably a good place to, to end this off here yeah, I don't um, think I have a lot more to say. Um, we usually throw in something about conservation every week and then our friends down at EcoDivers. I don't have a lot to say right now. They did have a hurricane. Hurricane Etta went right over top of them there last week. Um, yep. I think it was fairly quick moving. I don't think it was over the island very long, but uh, I'll be sure to reach out to Aaron and find out if it had any impact on their coral trees and stuff or if they you know, stayed rock solid like they expect them to. Mm -hmm. And I'm, uh, you must have heard about the... Uh... And I'm going to misquote this article, but it was uh, in Australia. They discovered a, did you see that article? It was Oh, the, the, the reef, the empire state building. Yeah, size was, reef. Yes. Yeah. They found an, they found a reef in Australia that was as tall as the empire state building. Mm -hmm. so that's pretty cool. That's, that's a pretty awesome discovery. It just shows you what more is out there. We know so little about what's really there. Oh yeah. Even, even in, uh, you know, in British Columbia, um, in oil exploration, when they do those deep dives, 
they find um, sponges that are, you know, 10 stories high of species that were unknown to science. I remember reading an article about that three years ago about an area that they found and there was, there was uh, sponges that were 10 stories high. Wow. So, yeah, it's, uh, that's uh, lots to, uh, lots to discover. Um, so, I mean, we've only skimmed the surface, so to speak. Yep. And, we, and we've been starting to line up guests too. I mean, we're talking about, we're going to reach out to these micro uh, biome people and see if they'd be interested in come on. I really hope they will. We have uh, Pat from Reef Wholesale is going to come on. And that man is just a wealth of knowledge. He's one mm -hmm. of the smartest guys I know in this area. Um, we're trying to have him on regularly. It's all about lining up schedules. I also have uh, Wendy from Fritz Aquatics and uh, Jay from CJ that are both willing to come on and chat here about various different things. They have some very big experiences. And I think we could get uh, Wendy from Fritz to bring somebody in because Fritz is Fritz is a bigger company. Maybe people don't know this. Fritz, Fritz is more than just saltwater aquariums and freshwater aquariums. They're actually an oil industry-based company working in, in various bacteria and stuff that has an aquarium branch so they might be real interesting people to talk to about the bacterias and stuff oh for sure mm -hmm. yeah i mean like the the level that uh <clears throat> that you know i know is so so small oh yeah <laughs> compared to might be smaller than you <laughs> yeah so like it's uh yeah, I think we should definitely bring in some some real experts and uh, sure. we'll, we'll, we'll grill them a bit and uh, it'll be awesome. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> All right, man. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it for today, guys. Um, you can find us online on Facebook uh, at For the Reef Podcast. Um, you can find Ian at Sustainable Marine Canada. You can always find me at fortheref.com. Uh, we all have our Instagram handles and all that kind of thing. Yep. And I have a page dedicated to For the Reef on our, on our website as well, where I'm posting the links to our, our podcasts and various things as well. Yep. Yep. Same with on For the Reef now. We have a, a page dedicated to the podcast. Um, so you can also reach us at uh, For the Reef Podcasts, spelt out um, at gmail.com. Um, where you can, uh, you can send us messages through email if you want. Uh, Facebook's always a great spot. Make sure you get on our For the Reef podcast uh, Facebook page. Uh, like it, and you can shoot us messages directly there because we'd love to hear from you. And if you have something that you thought we talked about and uh, you have questions. Or, or if something like, we missed. Yeah, oh yeah. Like, like, uh, these, are, these are our chats, right? There's, it's very possible that we just overlook something. So we, you know, if we miss something, tell us and we'll, we'll put it out there. Yeah. I mean, the number of things I probably said today that I said wrong, uh, it's probably, there's a handful <laughs> there. So um, if you- uh, scientific digest we're doing right now. This yeah. is just how we chat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. All so. right. Well, uh, thanks again, everybody. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, uh, stay safe, everybody. Wear your yep. mask. Wear your, wear your mask and uh, <laughs> yep, definitely stay safe out there.